this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. All right, greetings from Ecuador. I'm Linus Wilson. We had a very long passage to Ecuador. Uh, A lot of it uh, ended up being coastal, uh, but... uh, at least four days of it were uh, well offshore. And so that was kind of the delay in getting this podcast out. Last Wednesday, uh, Jana and Sophie and I were under quarantine, and we did not have enough internet on our phones to upload a podcast. It's always a, it's always a challenge coming into a new country to get uh, the internet up and running, although I think we have a good system now. We use uh, SIM cards, local SIM cards in the country, and use our unlocked iPhone as a hotspot, or I do. The first guy that sold me a SIM card and gave me a top-up, he gave me $15 of the top-up, but not the 30 that I paid for, and I only was able to buy 500 megabytes with that, and that went very quickly. Not enough for a podcast. Uh, Then I went to a a local retailer at the mall here after we got out of quarantine. That was basically on Thursday uh, and uh, was able to get a top up on my SIM card so that I can bring this to you uh, from here in Ecuador. But I'll be leaving Ecuador soon and going back uh, to teach school and... uh, relax in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. I guess some people that haven't had a phone bill in a while uh, will say that Wi-Fi is free. Uh, it, it definitely is not free. You know, there are some marinas, and, and this one, uh, I'm not at a marina, I'm in a, at, at a yacht club, the Porta Lucia Yacht Club, and my boat is on the hard, and it's about 10 feet off the ground right now. And they do have Wi-Fi. But, you know, the last uh, couple weeks I've been uh, trying to contact some people in this, uh, who are actually cruising in French Polynesia right now. And, uh, you know, in both cases, they, they found that the Wi-Fi was just not good enough to conduct an interview. One, we tried an interview and it just didn't work. And it wasn't not It wasn't on my end, it was on their end. Because, you know, when you get something for free, probably the quality's not going to be that good. And really, the free, the quote, free Wi-Fi you get as part of a marina, or if you kind of steal it uh, from somebody, it's just not good enough to uh, usually up or to record a podcast or upload a podcast, um, because it, it takes a little bit more speed than that. And so, you know, I, I, I think the... If you you really want to have internet that isn't really super slow and has somewhat reliability, you have to pay for the SIM card. So, you know, I bought two SIM cards in, in uh, already. I spent you know ninety dollars on on SIM cards and uh, buying the data uh, so far just here in Ecuador. I spent probably over two hundred dollars in Panama while I was there to do that. I, you know, I recorded uh, some, I recorded one interview 
over Wi-Fi with uh, SV Prism, and I'll probably bring that to you in a few weeks. And unfortunately, the sound quality was not so good. It was part of a Wi-Fi I had at a marina in Panama, which I also had to pay for. I had to pay $10 for a week of that in addition to paying for the week of slip fees. Uh, but, it, you know, it was just too slow. And, you know, that's part in part because, you know, if you have anything that people aren't paying for, there's just going to be too many people on the bandwidth and it's just going to slow it down. So you should always think that the, the Wi-Fi you get is going to be slower than the Internet you're going to get over uh, a cell phone network through SIM cards, probably because the SIM cards are uh, are where they're getting the Wi-Fi from. They're probably, unlike the U.S., I think very few foreign countries have telephone lines or lines in the ground that it's all through the cellular networks. So it was just me, Sophie, Jana, and Daly on the passage. And what I saw from the, the weather charts uh, was that... Uh, the winds are adverse, that they are pretty much on the nose coming from Panama City. They come from the southwest, and we wanted to go southwest from Panama City to Salinas, Ecuador. And Salinas is on the, the southern part of Ecuador. And so you have to sail past Colombia, uh, past most of Ecuador, to get to Salinas. Salinas is too south, so we ended up crossing the equator. And if you want to see a, a very tame shellback ceremony, you can check out the video on our Slow Boat to the Bahamas uh, Facebook page. I noticed that SV Dallas, our episode 10 guest, just uh, posted a video of their shellback uh, initiation ceremony, which had included a lot more hazing uh, than. Jana suffered through on our page. So when you cross the equator, the tradition is that you go from being a polywog to a shellback, and King Neptune has something to do with that ceremony. The winds are pretty steady, 11 to 16 knots, force 4 from the southwest. So our strategy was to get westing on the coast of Panama, then go offshore and try to maintain your westing as long as possible, um, whether it be motor sailing or sailing close-hauled. And really, sailing close-hauled, you're going to lose your westing. Uh, or, you, or you have to do a big tack to the west or northwest. So we first took advantage of Punta Mala. And I believe... On the bonus episode with Trey Benefield, which I think is episode 22, if I remember, uh, available to page, uh, Patreon supporters, he mentioned the the really strong currents that push you west uh, from Panama City uh, around the southern tip of of Panama, which uh, one of the points is Punta Mala, and it, it lives up to its name in terms of its roughness. And so we went around Punta Mala, we went around the southern tip, uh, and then 
the problem is that the land starts going up to the northwest, and so there's kind of little benefit from you know going along the coast. You, you if you go along the coast, um, you know if you're sightseeing, that's okay. But if you're just going along the coast to to get to Salinas, which we were, takes you away from your goal. You get farther away because you're heading northwest as Central America curves northwest. So a lot of people will attempt this passage from Costa Rica to get a a decent wind angle, but that also means it's a longer passage. And we weren't in Costa Rica. We had to get there. Plus, you got to check in. If we did all that, um, we'd run out of time, basically, for Jana and Sophie because they were only in Panama for three weeks. So... Uh, we went offshore. Um, the you know, it was pretty consistently bad winds, but the the swells were one to three or one to two meters or three to six feet, and so that seemed about at par for the course, about as good as you can get uh, in this region. You know, I think if you're going offshore, you're probably most people would say you know you need you're you wouldn't want to be sailing in less than uh, one to two meters. If even if you're, you're, you'd be unlikely also to find anything less than that. We found less than that in the Gulf of Mexico, which is has a lot of calms during the summer, um, and uh, sometimes we found a little bit less than that in the Caribbean, but not much. Uh, so we kind of motored on uh, 81 West for a while. Uh, and it rained for three straight days once we went offshore of Panama, and it was just miserable. Water was coming, uh, sluicing inside the cabin. Uh, Sophie was seasick. Jana felt seasick, although she was not throwing up. And so the other thing was, you know, we're motor sailing because we have such a terrible wind angle. We kept on doing that until we were averaging below four knots motor sailing uh because this basically the wind kind of shifted more on the nose so then we took our most favorable tack uh after three days and we tacked into shore in on the northern coast of ecuador so we we'd gone far enough that we weren't going to hit uh colombia our weather routers uh warned us not to go to colombia because of the kind of bad weather you'll get off colombia uh, the Columbia also is kind of the, the the threat of FARC and that type of thing. So, for instance, I was looking at some British uh, reports because there was a recent Ecuador, uh, Ecuador earthquake in northern Ecuador to find out the impact of that. And one of the things I saw with that is that the British government warns its citizens not to even go to the border counties or the border region of Ecuador because they're worried about their citizens being kidnapped by rebels uh, within Colombia. So that being said, a lot of people visit Colombia, including many of my guests. The World Arc goes through, I think, Cartagena, Colombia, so I think there are safe places. We did. We went to Providencia, Colombia, which is uh, far out of the FARC's zone of influence. But, uh, you know, I th- I think you have to take that into account, even if you're going to ignore it, that um, on the Pacific coast, 
but also on the Caribbean coast that there is that that kidnapping risk. And so on a podcast, for instance, uh, that I appeared on, uh, they, for instance, interviewed people who've been kidnapped in Colombia who were doing exciting trips that became more exciting than they wanted to be. Then we we tack in to land, and then then we're kind of you know we don't have a lot of sea room, and we tried motoring some more. It was really slow getting around the northern coast of Ecuador. Uh, it got a little better as we kind of turned south, and we could get a little bit better wind angles uh, to motor sail. Then our engine uh, conked out about fifty miles before Salinas or the Porto Lucio Yacht Club in La Libertad, which is right next to Salinas, which was our destination. And then we we started sailing the the, the rest of the way. Uh, we had kind of 10-knot winds. We put up full sail once, the, once dawn broke. The thing is, my boat doesn't point well. It's a little wide. It's got a lot of stuff on its deck. Uh, I've got extra halyards that's going to also improve, uh, make the upwind performance not as good. And so it's got a, a fair amount of windage. And so we've got, uh, for every, if we're tacking, our angles are not 90 degrees between tacks. It's more like, 50 degrees between tacks and so you're not going to make a lot of ground uh so we had a headland in front of us and so we did one tack and we had to turn northwest when we're we want to head south so uh or southwest uh so that that's kind of a a slow proposition so we had really kind of 24 hours after the engine conked out 50 miles to go and we could make, you know, three to four knots uh, if the wind was steady, uh, but we would go down to two, two. Uh, so we made kind of slow progress towards Salinas. And I asked um, the people that follow the Facebook page, and I reposted that on a couple marine diesel forums, uh, about, you know, what happened. So... I was kind of fooled because I had just put more oil in and then the oil pressure light went on right after I restarted the engine and then the engine depowered and then it died. And so I was fooled it was an oil pressure problem. I should have been looking on the uh, the frequently or the troubleshooting section of the manual under engine dying or engine not starting instead of the oil pressure light but i looked under the oil pressure light and it said you have no oil you got dirty oil so i changed the oil you know around 3 a.m and or 2 a.m 1 a.m and woke Jana up to do that uh because i think her she came on watch uh at a different time and then I, uh, uh, that didn't do anything and we couldn't start it. And so I asked people, a lot of people, uh, were thought, well, maybe if I bypass the oil pressure sensor, 
But the key thing is that I don't think on my engine, probably not on most engines, that if the oil pressure light goes on, it's not going to shut down the engine. There's no automatic shutoff. And a few commenters realized that. And I want to thank our episode four guest, Addison Chan, who is just uh, such a resource to all boaters and boaters going to Cuba uh, for realizing this and convincing me of it. Uh, so he commented uh, also Ryan Clapper and Paul Denton uh, also uh, and David Bettis um, all on Facebook uh, you know came to the conclusion or at least pointed me in the direction that hey you know if the engine's dying it's, it's an engine dying problem and the most common engine dying problems are you're not getting air to the engine so I, I changed the air filter i put in a new air filter right before we left i did i didn't right before we left i did a a new oil change i did a new uh i changed both the primary and secondary uh fuel filters uh but i had not changed the fuel filters uh since going and that was once i changed those about seven miles north of salinas engine started up and worked fine the primary filter in particular was very dirty um so i had probably delayed too long to refill the 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 diesel uh and that stirred up some and i also probably was using some dirty diesel uh and i used pre-filters uh before i put it in the tank so i've got a filter that that has a screen and it also has a trap to trap water and and diesel which makes it harder to use because you always have extra diesel or gasoline at the bottom of the funnel uh, but it also uh, probably saves you a lot of heartache in terms of not getting water in your gasoline or diesel engines uh, so it was dirty once I changed it uh, then I was able to get it started and you know one of the the problems was that we through this passage uh janet come to the conclusion that the the v-birth was too wet and it was too too um uh too rough uh to sleep in and so we started very early on we started sleeping in the uh the middle berths the settee berths but we still had all our stuff in the quarter berth which is the back berth and that's where you have the engine access and so i would have been probably quicker changing the filters but i had to you know spend like three hours moving the stuff from the quarter berth to the to v berth and i we actually have a lot more room i think now it's in the v berth the v berth has a little bit more room i think Jana, you know for a long time we were able to all sleep in the the v berth me, Jana, Sophie, and, and four-pound daily dog. Sophie's been getting bigger, and Jana doesn't feel like she has enough room there. So it's kind of a good switch now to kind of make the quarter berth our berth, and Sophie gets a, a settee berth uh, because I think that, you know, she's just getting bigger, and there's just not enough room for the three of us in the, the V-berth. So on the, the sale up to salinas as we're making our final approach i saw kind of big splashes and i thought well that must be some sort of rock or something and some sort of waves but it was actually humpback whales which are in the bahia santa elena which is where we are 
uh, and we saw two of the humpback whales come very close to our boat crossing from port to starboard and I actually filmed a little of that and snapped a few pictures of that as we were coming up. We got in uh, around 11 o'clock once we got the motor running and we dropped our hook in front of the the marina so we didn't have to get a tow into the marina the next day but we were put on a mooring and then we had to wait I think a, a full day uh, because they to, to get cleared um, uh, yeah they cleared us we got in really early in the morning and then late uh, they came in you know the the fees in in Panama and and Ecuador are really out of this world in terms of the customs fees. Uh, we paid five hundred twenty dollars to check in. Suppose that's also supposed to include our ZARP, but that will only be like our ZARP to which is our checkout to another port, the Galapagos within Ecuador, and then whatever Galapagos is going to cost is extra on top of that. Just outrageous fees. And then, you know, to renew so I can keep the boat here for 12 months, or actually 10 months, it, I have to pay another 150 for the renewal uh, through our agent who does not speak English. So that that's you know not great uh the you know the bonus of being in ecuador is that unlike panama it does not rain so much it's pretty dry here it's also a lot cooler so the humboldt current i think affects ecuador even though you're on the equator you think it'd be really hot ecuador is actually very cool compared to central america and and it's a lot less humid so the boat's going to keep well Compared to, you know, you see those horror movies that Nikki Steiger puts out on White Spot Pirates about the mold on her boat when she first got it in Panama. And, you know, even the, the places that we're going to store it in Panama, there's three places you could haul it out in Panama, all on the Caribbean coast. The problem is that that keeps me upwind to the Galapagos, so you have a really tough passage to the Galapagos. We got rid of the tough passage this year by coming to Salinas so next year going to the Galapagos it's uh you know close hauled to beam reach to broad reach to the Galapagos and it should be downwind um, most of the way from the Galapagos to the Marquesas next year and next year is going to be the big year over 4,000 miles uh, we need to travel to the next haul out facility either in Atutaki or in uh, Tahiti or Raiatea. All those are places in French Polynesia. So that that's kind of the, the thinking of, for coming here. Uh, Salinas, La Libertad, is kind of a, a ritzy area. This is a real working yacht club, uh, kind of high-end yacht club, too. Uh, I'd say it's more high-end than the yacht club than I went to the initiation fees for my yacht club in New Orleans I think was $300 um, and the initiation fees uh, for five years in uh, uh, this yacht club is 5000 and so it's kind of expensive to, to stay on the hard here in their parking lot 
but it, it is a nice place. It's got good security. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's not a lot of alternatives in this part of the world. So the, you know, the other place in Ecuador, a lot of cruisers come to, not many cruisers, I would say, come here. Uh, and there are really none on the hard right now or cruising size boats i would say there are some cruising side boats that are on med more slips uh they they go to bahia caraquez more north in ecuador on a mooring and i think they do have tended moorings so it's possible to leave your boat for a long time there i didn't want to do it because of you know issues at chafe you you very much dependent on the person that's tending it the other problem is that the, the earthquake hit very close to there, uh, even though they are still operational. So I don't really know kind of the impact on the area of the earthquake, but it's it's over, uh, you know, it's probably 40% of the price of coming here in Salinas. Uh, you're going to have a little bit worse at wind angle coming out of there, so you might want to do some coastal hopping before you go along. The problem with Ecuador is you, they've got ports, captains, and every time you go to a different port and very few ports of entry or very few ports that yachts are allowed to stop in, you pay extra. So really the kind of freedom of port hopping you would have in most places, including kind of the U.S., is not here and you pay a new agent a huge fee every time you go to a new port so i'm looking forward to putting panama and ecuador the land of port captains in my wake next summer this week i talked to gail and rob from miss lone star it's a real fun interview they're real nice people here it is this episode is sponsored by jennifer clark's Gulfstream. Satellite oceanographer Jennifer Clark and professional meteorologist Dane Clark have over 35 years of experience helping sailors on blue water voyages. Their current charts, crossing waypoints, and personalized weather advice help sailors take advantage of favorable currents and minimize the impact of unfavorable ones. A link to their website, their email address, and their phone number are in the show notes. from Sailing Miss Lone Star, and we have crew of two, uh, aside from us, Bianca and Blake. How old is uh, Bianca? Bianca is going to be seven on the 4th of July, and Blake is four. Okay. My daughter, uh-huh. Sophie, is five. Oh, wow. Do you guys live at work? No, not full-time. Part of the time. Oh, cool. And where are you right now? Panama. Oh, cool. Rob and I go back and forth. We haven't been to Belize or Panama, but we've been discussing um, where we want to end up when we are too old to sail. Okay. <laughs> Belize or Panama. Well, Belize usually you, Panama. Have, you have to be pretty old to be too old, old to sail. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, I guess you haven't met many cruisers. <laughs> Yeah, like mid to late 70s. Yeah. We've still got a long way to go for that. <laughs>
So what's the name of your boat again? Miss Lone Star. I thought that was the name of your old boat. Is that the name of your new boat too? That's the name, yeah. Okay, so it you changed the name of the new boat. Yes. Okay. I guess probably the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, the name Miss Lone Star. Where did that come from? We're from Texas, and so we wanted something that represented where we were coming from. I thought so. I read something that said you were from California. Is that right or no? I was born and raised in California, and Rob is from all over, and we met and married in Texas. Okay. All right. The Your family's been from boat. Texas. Yeah. Yeah, the powerboat Miss Lone Star used to sit on a lake in Austin, Texas, and um, it was my dream to retire and sail in the Caribbean. So that's, you know, well, I mean, not sail. At the, the time, it wasn't a dream, but we took the powerboat on the lake and put it in, in Tequima and then took it 1,350 miles to the Keys, so we lived aboard for about eight months. Okay, cool. Well, that's a long trip. Yeah, it was. It was with no experience. It was a longer trip than you can imagine. <laughs> so, is there? A, so, Miss Lone Star was just a name you guys thought of. It, it wasn't like it's like a beauty pageant or something like that. It is a beauty pageant, but that is not why we chose it. Okay, it was a sort of a cute, cute and stuff. All right. Name and I, I looked at the Coast Guard documentation. Couldn't believe it wasn't taken because everything in Texas is Lone Star or something. So we grabbed it. Ah, okay. Well, that that was Plus quite Texas a bit of searching. I didn't even know you could search for names like that. Yeah, you can do a, a vessel search through the um, uh, the Coast Guard like maritime division or whatever. Just do a basic search to kind of narrow down what you want to name your boat so you don't get rejected. Oh, really? They 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 reject names? I didn't know that. I thought there were multiple boats of the same name. No, not uh, Coast Guard document. They have to um um they have to have any, a unique name. That's why you get a lot of twos and threes. Um, the uh, the state registration it doesn't matter, but with Coast Guard you've got to have you've got to have a unique name. Oh well, I guess we got lucky with Contango when we changed it to Contango. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hi. It's it's a finance term referring to commodities that become less valuable as you get closer to the delivery date. So if you have uh, pork bellies, the price of the pork bellies get less valuable typically uh, when you actually have to hand over the pork bellies because people don't want to hold on to the pigs. <laughs> so anything anything that has storage costs okay. will okay, well that sounds experience right contango. Uh, it, contango is important if you're in the oil business because uh, that's a that's a, a feature of the oil markets too. Interesting. Not really. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm interested in your trip on the powerboat from Austin. I'm from Louisiana. We live in Louisiana. Right. Did you guys go through the ICW of Louisiana? We did. We we took um we we took the ICW from Kima and our first stop was Lake Charles. We had to divert because 
uh, you know, if you, I don't know if you watch our YouTube channel, we have it all there. It was pretty funny first day. You know, I have no experience, and, um, you know, when we're looking and trying to figure out our stops for, for fuel, and a lot of the fuel stations are non-existent, even the ones that are brand new on GPS, excuse my rookiness or naivete. But, um, you know, um, we were, were thinking we would get to in a coastal city, but um, we had to make a diversion when all the fuel was no longer there. So we went to um, we went to Lake Charles, where we proceeded to shoal our boat, have to call for a for a captain to bring us out. Would, we had a big dinghy and a motor on the back, so I thought the first thing he would want us to do when when he arrived was to drop that. So then I thought, well, you know, um, I'll uh, I'll pull on the boat a little bit and see what happens and. You know, I, I got it to move when I went sideways a little bit, and then I got ejected from the dinghy. It was kind of like the... His eyes were as big as saucers, because we had just seen some alligators pass us, and, and as he's falling in, I'm, I'm shouting, watch out for the bull sharks! And I, I I didn't see him get wet, but he was wet. He got out of the water so fast. <laughs> but we ended up making it to Contraband Bayou that night, and um, the people were so nice. It was, it was a pretty rough day. We were sunburnt, and and beaten and ran out of gas, shoaled the boat, day one. Didn't, didn't run out of gas. We actually had 40 gallons, but it, it, they were our tanks were reading empty. And, um, yeah, next day we made it to Intercoastal City, which was a really interesting place. Cheapest fuel on the ICW. I think we only paid $2.85. Isn't that the place that was desolate? Yeah, desolate, like not even we a restaurant. We saw four people. Yeah, it was weird. Well, there's like uh, I've been to Intercoastal City. I kayaked there. And uh, there's a little convenience store there. What? Yes, the, the one that's like... Uh, on stilts. On yeah. stilts, yeah. You kayaked there? Yeah. Why? Uh, I wanted to kayak the Vermilion River from the source to the sea. It was you a fun trip. Eaten by a gator? <laughs> I did not see any gators until I got to the Gulf of Mexico, and then I saw tons of them. Ugh. Yeah, there were gators there. And we, we traveled during July, so it was strangely, you know, heat index was off the charts everywhere we went, and it was like the, the face of Mars when we got to... Um, intercoastal city just desolate ghost town hot sunburned wow but you know we uh, we got fuel the next day and you know in a powerboat you know your your trip is so dictated by fuel we were learning and the expense of it it, it makes it um a lot of times uh, uncomfortable and not not as good of a time so we uh, we made it to Oklahoma the next day and we found that the icw got really pretty after about Morgan City, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And we stopped in City Park in Homa. You know, they have like a little little dock where you can, I mean, they have they have slips for about three or four boats. And we were the only like, people that had been there in two weeks. And that was cool. And we hung out with some kids in the park and our kids got to play. And we took a- Kids with no parents. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty interesting. Aubrey, Aubrey taught these kids how to, uh, how to throw a casting net off a bridge and we were listening to all their dreams and aspirations, you know, little kids that wanted to be pro football players. He was a 210-pound nine-year-old, so I think he was. his aspirations were pretty in line. <laughs> been one of the coolest things about our trip. We really just um, spend the time to um, 
to get to know people, you know, wherever we go. And um, it's it's been a, a real bright spot to our trip for the most part. So what and, kind of powerboat did you have? Uh, cruiser's yacht, uh, 3375. So it's a 33-foot, 37 overall. Um, you know, it was more of a it's more of a weekend cruiser that we ended up learning. The uh, you know there was a princess stove, electric. You know everything is driven by you know fuel or, or gas on, on that boat. So um, you know yeah, princess burners, two two burner stove, no oven. We did, we chose not to have a microwave in it because we don't really use a microwave anyway, and we wanted the space, the storage space for you know area of that we used and uh, you know like it was separated by curtains so the kid had a the kids had a little bedroom aft berth that they shared that otherwise would have been a couch area that was interesting <laughs> little tiny head you know um you know like a, a v-berth but you know again uh, a curtain that separated everything so it was pretty close quarters for a while 10 months okay how much did it cost, like, to go to go a hundred miles on the ICW and that? It would, you know, it was it was really easy to calculate. Um, <laughs> one one gallon per mile. Okay. <laughs> the, okay. The, uh, the, the trip cost us about six thousand dollars in fuel. Wow. From, okay. From Kima to, uh, you know, uh, Tavernier, I guess is where we put in. But you know, the probably one of the most unique and interesting parts of the trip was um, going up the locks. In, um, in New Orleans and going out on the Mississippi, it was uh, it was way over its uh, its banks, and uh, we had some interesting words of caution by the lockmaster. And you know, it's interesting because you have to call for um, you know you have to call the river control for entrance, and they tell you how to navigate. Essentially, they're real jerks too. They're very uh, proud of their bridges, and if you don't say it right, they're really mean to you. And no one gives you a class on how to, I mean, maybe there is a class, but we didn't take a class on how to use the radios for bridges and locks and what the, you know, like what the protocol, protocol is for that. And it was, uh, it was, it was really interesting. And a lot of the people have such thick accents, you cannot understand what they're telling you to do. Um, and then they treat you like an idiot, but we made it through. Okay. Our, that biggest lock we went through going into Harvey, this lock. Harvey lock. Yeah. That we rose up what 20 or 30 feet. No, it was more like 12 or 13. Are you sure? Well, it could have been 20. I don't know. You know, the, the river was over its banks. They, they said by like, like 50 feet or something. Feet. It was a 20 knot current. <laughs> I guess you're not turning around. Don't miss your turn. No. They, they said that. The lockmaster told us, um, when you get into the river, watch out for trees. And he says, when I say trees, I'm not talking about a log. I'm talking about an entire, entirely uprooted tree that had been flooding up north. So, you know, with the leaves on it and the root systems, you know, the smallest thing that we saw was a, a house door. Your front door. Going like flitter flop right in front of us, you know, and <laughs> you're moving at 20 knots. Plus your, plus your three or four or five knots that you're pushing yourself anyway. We saw an ocean liner that was stacked. I mean, who knows how many how many containers it had hundreds on it. Hundreds of containers. So yeah. like hundreds of diesel trucks basically stacked on this thing going 25 knots down this river and your eyes are like saucers. And it was, it was pretty, it was stressful, I think. Uh, never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. The force of the Mississippi was so great. It was amazing. 
Well, I was kind of toying with the idea of going down the Mississippi to Venice, Louisiana to cross the Gulf of Mexico. I never ended up doing it because another sailboater said it was crazy. You don't want to do it. There's all kinds of logs in addition to the traffic. The other thing was the winds were not right for me to cross straight across, so we had to actually get easting on the Florida coast. Yeah, well, we uh, yeah we, we moved along and you know we, we got to um, around Orange Beach. Um, what was the little island that we stayed at? Um, in Alabama. Yeah, it was it was right next to Dauphin Island. It was a really cool spot, and uh, we we hung out there, and then um, we we got back in the ICW um, and went through the backside of Alabama. And the next day, we made it to um, Fort Walton Beach, and we made a short. You know, we got up early, and then the next day was really interesting, taking the ICW um, back through the, the back end of where um, Apalachicola comes out. Mm-hmm. The walk was so beautiful. It was it was dark like coffee. The wake was that dark, but there were dolphins, and it was yeah. it was desolate. It, it was like really neat. Dark, brewed iced tea, not muddy, clear. And then when our wake kicked up, it looked like... Um, frothy sugar or frosting and it was white on top of this brown tea it was really really pretty we even saw a dolphin which bald eagles and bald eagles the dolphin seemed really out of place in that water because really? it was it seemed brackish yeah yeah but we made uh, we made out to Apalachicola and um, we made uh, we made Caravelle the next the next day and we were going to Across uh, the Gulf, 165 miles to uh, Clearwater was the plan. And everybody says, you know, if your wife's first crossing, make sure it's is about as calm as it can be. And we held off in Appalachia for four extra days and Caravelle one extra day just to make sure the crossing looked well. And uh, it was, you know, forecasting one to threes and, you know, five knots of wind and you know, we ended up getting sevens, and you know, in a in a power boat, that was that was significant. So we made about forty five miles of, you know, um, you know, beating pretty much, and getting you know um, waves cross bow. I'm down below with the kids, and we all have our own bucket. We're vomiting in. I thought oh, it'd be no. a good idea that morning to have coffee, and that's it. And then the kids had um. You had cookies too. Oh yeah, I had an oat oatmeal cookie i'm like oh it's got oatmeal in it and the kids had donuts and juice and we're just down there green in the gills it was terrible oh man but we turned with the waves and um we saw a very long day we made it 110 miles and we got to swanee river which is a really interesting place we had to throw it on the hook and um wait for the tide to rise and only got in you know probably with a foot of water underneath our our uh or bow. And we don't have that much draft. No. Yeah. It was I mean on that boat what yeah, was three, three feet. Three yeah. foot. So that was that was an interesting interesting spot. And then we made clear water and then, you know, it was uh blue green water and kind of pretty. We just kinda of hung out and decompressed for, you know, a week or so and uh then we made it to Marco and then after Marco we made it to Tavernier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so by the time you got to the Keys, you decided you wanted to sell your boat. It was getting too expensive. Is that it? Not quite. Um, we have, you know, four of us aboard, plus an 80-pound dog and uh, whatever critter, you know, I've rescued and collected. And the boat that we were in just 
even though it was 30, 37 feet, 33 feet technically to live on, I mean, living on that full time, it just, it wasn't meant for that. And so we had gone back and forth. We thought about maybe a trawler so we could have more space, but we love the lifestyle so much. We wanted to make it a little more comfortable for ourselves. And, um, we had a sale that was, that we were going to go through on a Matthews. What was it? 48? Yeah. We had, we were selling our boat and, uh, we had a buyer and then we were, were, you know, we were thinking the trawler route. So we had found a good deal on a, on a, you know, a, a, a Matthews trawler, you know, had a lot of character and, you know, thought it represented something that we wanted and, um, it didn't work out. And then we, we revisited the idea of sail. We had our first dock neighbors were sailors and they had a Beneteau and they were really impressing upon us the, the values of um, sailing. And, you know, we stay in touch with, you know, everybody we meet pretty much. And, um, you know, we just thought about it. We sat on the dock and had a beer and discussed it. And we thought, you know, we really want to go far and we don't want to be bound by gas and we want to be able to be um, self-sufficient. And, you know, and we'd had the opportunity then to, um, be on board a lot of boats and think about it a lot and um, you know we um, you know did some searching and found this boat for sale in Maine and uh, we bought it sight unseen. How much time passed between you buy uh, selling your powerboat and then buying the the sailboat? We actually haven't sold the powerboat yet <laughs> and that was the problem you know we don't have a lot of money saved up and you know we, we own the powerboat so we were going to have to sell it before we could buy something different. And um, it's actually the subject of one of the films that we're putting out now. Um, I was I was looking around on Yacht World, just daydreaming, you know, seeing what was available. And I saw this listing that said lease purchase. And I thought it was a scam, you know. Um, the boat didn't seem to be priced appropriately for the features that it had. And um, it just looked kind of scammy to me. So, so I called the broker, who was Maine, and um, she explained that this was a boat that had been donated through one of those IRS boat donation programs to the Maine Maritime Academy, and that the terms on uh, the boat were to um, essentially purchase it for 30% down, make payments on 30% over three years or so with 0% interest. And for us, that seemed kind of like a no-brainer. We had just enough money after we delayed the purchase for a couple months. We had just enough money to make the debt down payment and to pay all of our expenses to um, make it happen, and we got it taken care of. Interested in how you guys take care of kids on the boat and keep it moving, too, and in good shape. So maybe you could give me some me and Janet some tips on that because I think it's always a challenge for us when Sophie's aboard usually one of us is kind of occupied so it's kind of like the other one is solo sailing and it's usually going to be Jana and she really likes to sail so she's not yeah. crazy about that arrangement it is difficult when your kids are so young I think from the other uh, sailors and parents that I've spoken to you know, there's a captain and a nanny, <laughs> and that is kind of how we've had to do it in the past, too. And it, it is a struggle, and we hope as the kids get older and more mature, you know, they can become uh, more more crew, you know, instead of... Or just maybe even more babysit themselves. <laughs> yeah. 
years. We have two kids. Yeah. Uh, served on and they're both pretty young. And uh, when did they start? How old were they when they you guys first got on the the powerboat in Texas? Mike was three. And no, no, no. Yeah, I don't think he was three. Yeah, he was three. Oh, was he? Yeah. Yeah, we're we're coming up. It's our one year anniversary on the fifteenth of July. Anniversary of owning the sailboat, or the anniversary of living aboard. Oh, living aboard. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. yeah. So as far as keeping everything straight on the boat with the children, I think the key with that is to have less things. The less things you have, the uh, the easier it is to keep things in order. The less things you have, the less there is to keep in order. So as far as the kids each have a small box of whatever they want to put in it. If they want to fill it with seashells or they want to fill it with, you know, action figures. They can or books. No Legos. No Legos. Yeah, they have a they have a certain amount of space, and if it's important enough to them to take up a portion of that space, they can keep it. And when they want to get something new, they have to get rid of something out of their box. That's kind of how we've done it, and it's worked out pretty well. The the less we have, the easier it is. And you know what? Kids really don't need that much. He's like our little boy will get a stick and a rope and or a fishing net, and he will entertain himself all day. Bianca, she will have a coloring book, and we have one of those um, easy reader pens for her that will help her, you know, get through some of the words on her pages. And, you know, she entertains herself, and and it's, uh, it's just it's all about having less. And I think that's the whole point of living aboard is learning how to be happy with less and sit with yourself and entertain yourself and enjoy what's around you without being a consumer. Yeah, I think I th think the other thing that was a, you know, definitely an issue for Jana is the the amount of work it is to homeschool. And uh, you know, one of the reasons why I kind of like our summer schedule now is that uh, at least we're not taking her out of school and having to catch up and that that takes more time out of Jana's day. It's not just that uh, the the kids or Sophie needs to be entertained. It's also, you know, Sophie needs to keep up with the lessons at her school so she can come back um, on track. Yeah. So uh, how do you... How do you manage the homeschooling for the, I guess, maybe the youngest may not be of school age, but the oldest is? I guess the, the answer to that is, is unschooling. I mean, there's only a certain amount of things that you have to teach your children, like how to read. We knock that out in a couple weeks. Math skills and um, science and things like that are all just... Um, kind of what happens in a day, like we'll talk about the tides and the stars and um, when we catch things, we'll dissect things and um, it's kind of a school of the world and I know that that's frowned upon with some people, but, you know, I think they're going to do great. Okay, so you're not necessarily following a particular curriculum guide or anything like that for the moment? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we took reference from the state of Virginia, looking at their curriculum for a first grader and, um, you know, what was required to um, meet the, um, you know, meet the objectives for first grade education. And we tried to take up the, the daily lessons to reflect that. And we find that there's so much more time in the day to do more things that we, we do those things. And, you know, and sometimes that's just the kids 
finding what is interesting to them and then and then us researching it and figuring it out and having fun with it. Yeah, I think the other issue that came up on our Bahamas cruise was that Sophie had a hard time finding other playmates or other children her age because the cruising community is so old that they're typically retirees in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, there are so few boats out there that actually have kids, although you may not have run into that because you're kind of just going along the U.S. coast and you're probably not really in the in the cruiser bubble yet but, you know so we, we might be able to find a lot of kids locally whereas in the bahamas there just weren't that many kids besides the bahamians and that's who sophie ended up playing with when she was in stocking island yeah our our son is a little bit of a loner he likes he likes other kids but he likes to he likes to do a lot of fishing and you know, he, he's very imaginative. He loves to play, you know, kind of by himself with his little action figures and, you know, we'll, we'll play. He's, uh, he's not yearning for as much social interaction as our daughter does. But, um, if we are in a place where there's not a lot of children, she makes friends with adults really well. One of her best friends was a 67 year old lady and they watch cartoons together and, uh, paint each other's toenails and make cookies. And she loved it. And, um, you know, she's, to become a really good communicator with adults because of that. So I think it makes kids more adaptable. Yeah. I don't know. I think it, I think it depends. I, I think Sophie is a very, very social girl compared to maybe me or <laughs> her mom. Yeah. That she's yeah. very social. And so she does, she does miss, uh, I think, her playmates. We've met up with a lot of friends who, um, you know, it's it's very fortunate with us having this YouTube channel and, you know, the following of Facebook or Twitter. We've been contacted by a lot of people who are doing the same thing as us that have, have children. And I, I'm thinking about, you know, some Canadians we met up with that were aboard a catamaran and they had four children. And, you know, we they were doing a refit for a time and we were hanging out together and... You know, we do a lot of, you know, boat visits with other people. You know, it seems like doing what we're doing, um, it's maybe in a, in a lot of places, it's, like you say, less common. But people find us and single us out and contact us and really, you know, come to visit, hang out. You know, we have a lot of friends that come and visit, you know, friends that we just met pretty much. And um, they bring their kids, and you know we have we have little get-togethers and events and barbecues and parties and stuff, and it's really cool. I have, a, I have one more question about the kids. Think I watched a few of your videos, and the thing I noticed they're typically not on, but it seems like you have one person filming and one person talking, or maybe both filming it together, and uh, where you just have uh, the camera set up but I rarely see the kids and I'm wondering, are they just sitting in the background quietly or what, where are they? <laughs> um, we do interviews. Usually they're playing just depends on where we are. If we're up top, they're down below. If we are at a beach, they're in the surf and we can see them. They're kind of behind the camera. Um, sometimes we include them in interviews, but they're not that interested in it. And then as far as 
I kind of plan out a lot of what my shots are going to be. I don't know if you've known this, but uh, when we took the trip from Maine to where we are now here in Connecticut, we had uh, my mother watch them because it was a little bit of a dangerous sail. Um, so they weren't even here. Okay, so maybe that was part of what I was watching. Yeah, so when we were in the Keys, uh, they were always in the videos. You can kind of hear them in the background. And a lot of times um, I'll modulate out the the bickering or whatever's happening in the background. (laughs) So that's some some editing magic, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Okay. All right. Uh, So what's your plan after Connecticut? We're going to be done with the refit on the boat here and in about two weeks we've decided that we're going to go back to Maine for the summer because we um, kind of blew out of there and it was still snowing and it was frigid and we didn't have the the greatest experience so we want to go back and visit Maine we established a lot of friendships with people and we saw a lot of places and heard about a lot of places we want to go go to we want to go back to Maine for the summer and we you know want to explore that area and then we want to also get a lot of the, the few of the things that we missed, you know, Boston Harbor, want to spend a little bit more time in Martha's Vineyard and Block Island. And then we're going to um, go down the go down the sound and go through Hellgate in New York and make our way along the, the, the coast to North Carolina. We'll probably tuck in the ICW for a few days. And then, um, you know, we'll make our way along the shore to um, uh, to around Fort Lauderdale. And then we'd like to do a crossing to Bimini right, you know, right in, you know, early November, we plan to spend the next cruising season entirely in the Bahamas. All right, so check out links to the show notes to see where you can find out more about the crew of Miss Lone Star. Uh, If you want to help out the podcast, uh, you could write a review. That's a great way of telling people you don't know about how much you like it. Uh, it's a big boost uh, to me every time I see one of those uh, five-star reviews. Uh, you can also support the podcast on Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a great value. You get the bonus episode with the crew of Miss Lone Star and bonus episodes going back all the way all the way to episode 10 with SV Delos. Plus, you get my 999 value audio album version uh, which is available on iTunes but free to uh, patrons of the podcast of my book How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. Thank you to Presmec, our newest patron who also gets a free version of Slow Boat to the Bahamas as part of being a first mate patron. I'm going to start going to a two-week schedule, and two weeks uh, we're going to have four hands on deck, and that'll be a fun interview. Goodbye for now. Have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.